It's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. I'd like to introduce to the show John Saltingstall, who is the author of Nicky Lauder, His Competition History. Hello, Mark. It's a delight to talk to you. Now, this is your first book. And nine years in the making, uh, as you told me a little earlier. What tempted you to write the competition history of Nicky Lauder? Well, I suppose, why Lauder in the first place? Because he was my childhood hero. Um, so he, he was sort of, for as far back as I can remember, he was at the front of my consciousness as a, as a sporting hero. Uh, why write a book about him? Um, I, I set out to, to write the book that I wanted to read because it didn't exist, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of the, the material that I'd gathered together had, had, had partly, certainly a lot of the photographs had been uh, amassed because I'd been building little 143rds models of, uh, of all the cars that he competed in. So it's just um, putting in, I mean, there is the photograph of you with this vast array of small racing cars that are all all representative of all the cars louder raced. I mean, just very quickly, how many model cars have you? About 170. All right. I'll tell my better (laughs) half. She complains about my model cars, but they're nowhere near that numerous. Right, OK. Well, yeah, so so you've got some way to go, maybe, with those. But, uh, yeah, largely, well, mostly scratch-built, and those that aren't were probably modified and uh, correctly decaled and the rest of it. Um, But having been through the process, which been going on for a number of years of, of getting to that I'd, I'd uh, amassed quite a large photo archive yeah um and it occurred to me that uh, there was a book in there somewhere um the the original sort of theme came from do you remember the uh, sterling moss my cars my career book that Doug and I did yeah a few years back with sterling moss I yeah thought, well let's what why not approach this from a race by race basis and let's see if we can actually with something where we we say, here's every car that he raced, and here's the story of, of how each race went. Um, now, that presents some interesting challenges insofar as, um, you know, it's, it's quite easy to find out what happened uh, and indeed to find a photograph of the 1975 Monaco Grand Prix. But if you want to try and find out a photo of the 1968 Tauplitz hill climb uh, and what happened to a young driver who nobody had ever heard of, uh, that's a little bit more difficult, um, hence nine years, really. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you're trying to get back to uh, original source material uh, from reports that were produced uh, the week after the race in uh, either the local newspaper or the local sporting journal or the local version of uh, whatever magazine is representative of something like Autosport or Motoring News in, in Deep East Austria. Um or you've got to try and get hold of the uh, the original stewards uh, report for you know sort of entry numbers and times and things like that. Um, some of it is um, harder to find than others, uh, but that's where uh, where the network of enthusiasts and uh, and and historical researchers sort of uh, comes into its own because it's surprising how how sharing and giving people are when you uh, when you ask them for help. Yeah, I mean the other thing is it's like all racing drivers. The, you can only start. You can only find information, shall we say, on a slightly more easy basis as soon as they become well known or famous. Until then, most racing drivers, no matter how good they became, their early career is 
shall we say, it's a little bit shrouded in secrecy because, as like you said, it'll only be the local paper or the, the that country's equivalent of motoring news that would have made any record of it. Absolutely right, yeah. And uh, uh, well, there's an old saying, isn't there, that you know, history's written by the winners. It's certainly written about the winners. Um, so if you're, you know, if, if, if your guy doesn't make your mark pretty quickly, you, you, you're trying to swim in murky waters to find the early stuff. I guess that's where. I was slightly fortuitous with with Nicky because he's he, he made an impact really from from the get go. You know, finished second in his first run, got reported in the local paper, much to the surprise of his parents who didn't ah. know he was there. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then won his next sort of four events. Uh, so so within a very short space of time, there, there was a sort of uh, coterie of local supporters who were who were following him around. He got a little sort of gang of followers who were um, taking quite an interest in him. So he. So in magazines like, well, magazines probably the wrong, wrong thing, but uh, things like Austro Motor and some of the broadsheets that uh, that were produced locally at the time, his name was starting to be mentioned really from the very beginning of his career. So as long as um, you collect those together and piece them together, it's a bit like a jigsaw, isn't it? You, you, you probably need half a dozen reports from any one race to get the full story of what happened. Yeah. And that was that was the process that we kind of go through. Even for the better known stuff, you know, you can, you can read a, a you know, a, a report of a, of a Grand Prix in the 1970s, but you, you, you probably need half a dozen different reports to get the true picture of, of what happened and indeed to get a correct pers- perspective on it because it's surprising how often errors are repeated. Yes, so, um, it's called copying and plagiarism. Absolutely right. What was interesting in all of that, actually, Mark, is that if you read Lauder's autobiographies, um, particularly um, for the record and to Helen Back, where he, in the back of the books he lists um, the races he competed in and how he got on, just just purely from a results perspective, there are fourteen races in there that he doesn't mention, oh. and he, he doesn't even acknowledge that he took part in. Um, what what of those being actually his first ever single seater race, which you would think would probably register, wouldn't you? For a, it te- for I mean, a- in, in most racing drivers' careers, the first single seater race tends to be a bit of a like a, a high point in their career, doesn't it? It's something they want to talk about. Absolutely right, you know, because that's kind of what they've been aiming for, um, and particularly when, when when it's one like his, because um, he'd um, he'd been doing quite successfully in uh, in hill clubs and he'd, and in done a few airfield races by this point he was in a, he was in a Porsche 911 um, and his uncle uh, who was a supporter of his unlike his father who who, who wasn't um, his uncle had been badgering Kurt Bergman who was the boss of the uh, the Cayman Formula V team um, a highly successful Formula V team in, in Europe at that time and he was kind of the Colin Chapman of Formula V was Kurt Master Bergman um, so Uncle and Young Lad have been badgering him to, to give him a tryout, um, which Bergman have been swerving a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and finally, he, he he relented and said, OK, you can have a drive, but here's the deal. The transporter driver is on holiday, so if you, take, if you drive the racing car transporter to the next race um, with three cars on it and a trailer with the fourth uh, and bring it back in one piece um, then you can drive the fourth car in the race uh, <laughs> this, this was happy days for Nicky because uh, as, as, a, as a kid as a team he um, he really used to like driving the Opal Blitz um, 
delivery lorries that uh, ran from his dad's um, paper factory that the uh, that the guys in the delivery guys used to let him drive. Yeah. So he was quite familiar with the vehicle. But the rub with 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 this uh, this whole thing was that the first race was actually in Kimola in Finland. Oh right. So he has to, so to drive this thing from Vienna to Kimola. So it's a complete road trip, including crossing the Baltic. That takes however <laughs> many days to get there. Uh, but he, he gets it there in one piece. The uh, the Caymans were the class of the field, um, comprehensively outclassed anything that the Scandinavians had shown up with. Um, they finished one, two, three, four, and. Nicky was the fourth, um, and he brought the thing back in one piece all the way down the autobahn, and, and it just got somewhere near Hamburg um, when the uh, when the when the drawbar on the trailer broke. Yeah. Um, and he managed to stop the thing in a straight line uh, from seventy kilometres an hour or whatever. Um, uh, and they decided the only thing they could do because the trailer was beyond the repair, there was no hard shoulder either. So they slung the trailer over the uh, over the over the crash barrier, hitched the. Uh, the fourth car to the back of the uh, transporter and hauled it back to uh, to Vienna. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a rattling good story, um, and yet he makes no mention of it in, in any of his own work, which in some ways endorses the fact that you know he had he, he had very little interest in his own history. He was, yeah. he was unemotional about that completely. And because I mean, looking well, besides the you saying the Porsches of the Formula Vs, I mean, he raced cars that that most people wouldn't have expected him to race. I mean, he had a, a bit of a spell in minis at one point, did he not? Yeah, he, he started out in mini. Uh, the, 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 the first car that he had, because he'd already been through a couple of road cars um, uh, before he got to his first race, uh, which only lasted a matter of a few hundred yards, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, he... Um, uh, he, he was. Uh, he, he, he had a, a drive in the, the road mini that belonged to his friend Peter Draxler, and uh, wrote it off against a, uh, a stone bridge parapet uh, on an icy road. Um, uh, went and begged his grandmother to give him uh, some money so that he could uh, buy the wreck off uh, off Draxler's father because he knew he was selling it, and he immediately parted the wreck for for the first racing mini, which yeah. was. Um, it had, it had won the Austrian Hill Climb Championship the year before in the hands of a chap called Fritz Baumgartner. Uh, right from the beginning, he was very keen on having the best prepared and the best available machinery at his disposal. Um, he only raced the Mini four times. Uh, as I say, he came second with it first time and won the next three races with it. But it was always immaculately turned out. Um, and he continued that with his next car, which was a... Porsche 911 that he'd, he'd done a similar sort of pot shop deal with uh, with Peter Peter, who had um, also raced this thing quite successfully on the hills on the airfields, and he had it prepared by uh, Gerhard Mitter, uh, who had a, as well as being the driver had a reputation as uh, as, as a preparation specialist. Yeah. Um, so I think you know the louder name and the fact that there was some money in the background helped that, even though it was very hand to mouth existence. But yeah, going back to the point that you made, yes, he raced an absolutely eclectic range of machine. I would think you know that oh yeah, Landry's the guy you drove for Ferrari and McLaren, isn't he? But um, outside Formula One, where of course he also drove the March and the BRM, he um, and Brabham, of course, uh, he, um, he he raced in touring cars. He raced. Um, BMW and Ford Capri touring cars, uh, and he raced in all sorts of oddball things in, in one-offs. You know, he, he did uh, he did a, a Formula Pacific race in 1984 in a Ralt. He did um, 
uh, a couple of little sort of oddball touring car races, uh, a couple of charity races in, in Fiat. Uh, he did a Nissan Pulsar Challenge in Australia. Really sort of oddball things that you wouldn't have expected uh, a, a Formula One driver to be doing even in, even in the 1980s. Yeah. So, I mean, when as, as time progressed, did you, were you ever fortunate enough to meet him? The closest I got to that was the 1982 British Grand Prix where he was walking across behind the paddock and I said, can I get your autograph, Nicky? And he sort of said, maybe later. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it may not have been as polite as that. But um, that that was very typical of the guy, I guess, really, uh, which, yeah, it's it's a shame I didn't get the opportunity to, uh, to talk to him first person, but... In some ways, that didn't necessarily damage the uh, the text because the book is a factual account. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's based on reportage rather than a, uh, the stuff about his own life and his own life story because he's he's done that so well himself. Yeah. of course, in his in his in his, in his autobiographies and the, his two how to do it books, if you like. And there's a couple of um, uh, there's a couple of good biographies about him. There's also a couple of very bad biographies about him, but um, it's uh, it didn't necessarily mean too much damage to the text by not being able to have that conversation, shall we say? Right. And not be, did he did he know you were writing this book? No. Um, the, the, the the manuscript was finished literally a couple of weeks before he died. Um, I'd been putting it together for quite a long time. Um, and when he died in May last year, I hadn't even got a publisher lined up for it. Uh, there were a few people who knew I was doing it. There were a few people on the, uh, the Autosport Nostalgia Forum particularly knew I was doing it. Um, and when he died, I, I was almost on the point of, of shelving it because it felt a little bit macabre and, and ghoulish. Yeah. And a few people who, who knew I was doing it, one, one of them being Doug Nye, um, said, yeah, do it. Uh, in fact, Doug's specific words to me were, do it, but don't F it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, good advice, which which hopefully I took to heart. Um, uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why uh, Doug wrote the, uh, wrote the uh, preface for it. Um, but within sort of four or five days of, of him dying, I spoke to, uh, to Mark Hughes, who's the uh, editorial director at Ebro, and I said, I've got this project. Um, are you interested in, uh, in, in having a look at it? And he yeah. said, Tell, tell me about it. So I, I, I gave him the idea of the scope, and roughly the size of it, and what was involved. Uh, and within a week, we'd signed a contract. And um, the whole process then, I mean, that, that conversation happened at the end of May, and we, and we actually published the thing on the 1st of November. So it was an incredible turnaround in terms of editing photo approvals, because none of the photos were licensed at that point. I was going to say, um, that, is, that can be one of the problems, because a lot of the images that you might have uh, collected and managed to accrue and pull together, um, you would have had to have sought permission to publish. Did you find this a problem? Um, about 100 of them we were given, uh, including some of the very earliest ones, like the uh, the, the photo of the, uh, of the Mini on his parents' drive the day before his very first race, which actually came from a chap who accompanied him on the, uh, on the trip to Kimala that we were talking about earlier. Um, so about 100 of them came, were sort of given by private individuals who had collated them. Some came from um, more well-known archives. A lot of them came from private and lesser-known archives. Um, but we, we specifically tried, or I certainly tried in the first instance, to use photos that were not the familiar ones and the ones that have been published a lot, but also ones that weren't just a cro close-cropped 
photo of a car that had a little bit more background to them that gave you an idea of the of the ambience of the place where yeah. he was racing and what conditions were like um and that's that's as you, as you go through the book that's that that kind of tells a story in itself as you look at the, how how tracks evolved how circumstances evolved and safety facilities uh, uh, changed and developed throughout the course of his uh, his career yeah. so when you look at some of the photos that were taken say in belgrade or budapest uh, or sopron um, in the, in a few sort of formula v races that you did behind the iron curtain you know they're you know they're eye-opening, really. When you, when you, <laughs> I've got some that we didn't use. I've got a cracking photo of, uh, that was taken in in Brno in uh, in 1970 in the Formula Three race. There, um, it, we didn't use it because he's running third in the, uh, in, in the in the photo, and it's not. It's a little bit grainy. Yeah. But it's just crazy. You know, it's it's through the centre of one of the villages of Brno, and there's just no uh, there's no safety procedure facilities whatsoever you know it's 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 like spa would have been in the 1930s you know there's just lampposts and trees and spectators hanging out of doorways and not no armco inside and six inch curbs it's it's crazy well not being funny it's like the target florio i mean that was people used to stand on the front doorsteps to watch him go past didn't you (laughs) indeed indeed um yeah, I, I'm laughing because when, whenever anybody mentions the Targa Florio, I'm, all, I'm always reminded of what Paul Hawkins said about that because um, I can't remember who was co-driving with Hawkins at the time, but they were expressed some uh, reservations about how close the spectators were and that you might hit some of them. And, and Hawkins said, well, I'd, I'd rather hit spectators than a, a bridge parapet because spectators are mushy. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I have driven the Targa Florio both for pleasure uh, and I was invited to. I mean, it's now a rally, uh, like yes. a form of rally. So I was I was fortunate to have driven it on, on in the two variations. But uh, once again, there's a particular rock face with the memorials in, and the memorials. It's a bit like underneath each little memorial, there's an arrow, and that's where the uh, poor benighted soul impacted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 well, the thing about the, the target. I, I know we've piece to me here but it's, it's interesting that one of the things about the target of course was that the spectators behaved a bit like some of the more lunatic ones do on rally stages didn't they I mean, yeah. 19, was, it, was it 1973 when Jackie Hicks was uh, had famously made some comment about not liking the place and he thought the best thing that could happen would be for Mount Etna to bury it yeah um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he, he came sort of hurtling around the corner I think on his first lap uh, uh, I think it's in Colasano or somewhere like that and found a great big rock in the middle of the road uh, and the next thing he's in the wall yeah. you know so uh, yeah they um, they certainly made it a little bit more dangerous than it <laughs> should have been and the other thing is uh, as I said we're on all a little bit off piece here uh, they used to have to drive round early in the morning on the uh, of the race day for the simple reason since uh, Sicily is so volcanic uh, to just check that there were no holes that appeared and there's one yes. pa- there's one particular corner uh, anybody out there who's easily offended you won't like this it's called paraplegic corner because there was a young paraplegic lad used to stand there and wave enthusiastically they went round there one morning to discover basically uh, uh, a four foot deep, two feet wide trench had made its appearance over the course of the night because there'd little been, been a bit of tectonic shifting going on. Crikey, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that might bring a temporary halt to proceedings, yeah. might it? I mean, the only thing they did was fill it in and hope that nothing else appeared and off they went for the day. I mean, it's uh, it was very less fair was racing back then, was it not? It was, and uh, that point, 
actually. That comes through when you certainly look at the, if you look, say, at the the Formula 3 era that he was racing, and I mentioned then about the lunacy of Bronova, uh, and of course, Lauda famously got out of um, Formula 3 racing because he said it was inhabited by madmen, <laughs> having, having had a couple of um, very crazy shunts um, you know, in his last well, his, his first Formula 3 race lasted about four seconds uh, because he, um, he, he he got away off a fairly poor grid position and his teammate, Gerald Pankles, um, uh, engine cut out right in front of him and Ladder sort of tore the wheels off his car against it. Um, but, and, his, and his very last Formula 3 race, about two-thirds of the way through that year, he, um, at Zolder, where he was... Um, it was in a pack of cars that sort of crested a brow to find an ambulance in the middle of the track on its way to another accident. <laughs> um, uh, so the cars are sort of darting left, right and centre to try and swerve around this thing. It was sort of like the wacky races. And um, uh, he, he, although he missed the ambulance, somebody else hit, hit him, spun him around and somebody else T-boned him. So yeah. he's left there, sit, sat in the middle of the track, um, basically in a chassis with no wheels, waiting for the impact that, that never arrived. There were there were no um, there were no wave there were no yellow flags at all, let alone wave one. So the next pack just came sort of uh, hops over the brow. One of the cars went straight over the nose of his, and uh, everybody missed him. And when they got out of the way, he jumped out of the car, ran it, and jumped over the barrier, and said, "That's it, that's me done. I'm not doing any more Formula Three. <laughs> um, uh, uh, he probably went off and then raced a uh, raced a Porsche 908 uh, uh, Spider in uh, a bit of intercity and. Um, uh, and, and German sports car racing, yeah. but uh, that whole Formula Three era of his was characterised by this uh, sort of itinerant lifestyle that was so popular in junior Formula racing around the time you know, where you trailed the car from one race to the next and hope that you made enough start money and prize money at, 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 at race A to get you to race B. Yeah, um, uh, there's a I think there's, there's one of the photos earlier on in the book where it, it's taken the paddock at I think it's at Manicure where, because um, him and Gerald Pankel had formed a little sort of Vienna racing team enterprise that bought a couple of Magnamaras, which was definitely not the car to have in 1970 in Formula 3. Um, and they were, they were racing these things around Europe, as I said, sort of in a hand-to-mouth way. So this photo is taken in the Manicourt paddock of uh, Pankel leaning sort of nonchalantly against the back of the transporter and loud as they're pumping up the back tyre of, uh, of his car with a pump. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a far cry from, uh, you know, Scuderia Ferrari. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying with the Formula One, he was renowned for Ferrari. Of course, it was the Ferrari had his huge accident in at the Nordschleife, uh, and the famous phrase by Hunt, the only man who could come out of a fire more more handsome than it was when he, before he was in the fire. Uh, yeah. I mean, everybody thinks Hunt and Lauda were... Uh, the, yes, they were rivals, but they were also great friends. Well, that of course is the um, is, is the great um, central premise Hollywood treatment in Russia has, has, has added fuel to that fire, hasn't it? Because it, it presents them as, as guys who hated each other, when, whereas, as you say, they were best buddies and had been since since nineteen seventy. They they briefly raced against each other in uh, in Formula Three, but they were certainly racing against each other in in, in Formula Two crossover and, and kind of arrived in Formula 1 around the same time yeah. um, uh, and initially Hunt was uh, uh, probably thought of as the better prospect yeah. he, was, he, he was going gangbusters with the uh, with the Hesketh March in 73 whereas Nicky was trying to drag the um, 
drug the BRM around, which was uh, certainly not the thing to have in uh, in 1973 either. Although it is, of course, what made him his uh, his, his reputation uh, with Enzo by uh, um, the the Monaco Grand Prix, where he uh, he kept the thing in front of uh, of Ixis Ferrari for about 20 laps in, yeah. in third place. Uh, uh, and also, uh, perhaps less less well known, the, uh, the, uh, the British Grand Prix in '73, when um, when Schechter took out off the field at the first uh, at the end of the first lap, um, at the restart, of course, Ladder had got a great big empty space in front of him on the grid, so he he, he basically rocketed up the inside of the pit wall and and, and was uh, uh, second or third into the uh, into the first corner um, behind uh, Peterson and Stewart and was making quite a good fist of it uh, until his tyres went off after about half a dozen laps. Yeah. Uh, but it was that that had really got uh, Enzo's attention as, as much as the uh, as, much, as much as the Monaco race had. And uh, um, it was only a matter of weeks after that that he that he signed the contract with Ferrari. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then he, of course he took uh, he. He, he took some time off for louder air and everything else. And then, I mean, I was once told that the main reason he came back and drove McLaren was he was short of cash and that was how he would get some money back in his bank. It was, it's, a, it's a popular story. Um, he always denied that it was that, that was the case. Um, he, he went to, In 1981, he went along to the Austrian Grand Prix with um, an Austrian journalist called Heinz Pruller who was um, uh, doing some uh, commentating, I think. And um, I've got a photograph of him sort of standing there watching proceedings. And, it, and it, it, there's this, you can see that in his face, he's thinking, you know, maybe I'm not finished with this yet. Yeah. Maybe I left too early. Um, he, he, he certainly thought that uh, relatively quickly after his departure in, uh, in 1979, he'd, he'd obviously immersed himself in his airline, made it, made it very successful. He was certainly battling bureaucracy um, with his airline in that he was finding that tiresome but he was he was never a guy to give up so he um, you know he, he was rattling away with that but um, his comeback I think into uh, into Formula 1 was more to do with unfinished business than it was to do with needing the money even though he, he, he managed to screw a huge fee out of uh, uh, well I say out of McLaren but it was actually out of John Hogan at Marlborough yeah. to, uh, to, to be able to, to come back uh, he'd he, uh, of course, we've got um, a relationship that he'd already built up with Ron Dennis uh, from 1979, because um, in 1979, when he was having his his final year with uh, with Brabham, which was the nadir of his career, really, in terms of results and performance, because the, the car was an absolute disaster, um, he'd concurrently raced in the um, BMW Pro Car Championship that supported eight Grand Prix throughout the year. Yeah. Uh, you remember the big fire-breathing BMW M1. And the the car that Lauda was driving that had been um, built and prepared by Project 4, which was Ron Dennis's um, setup before he he bought out McLaren. So um, they'd worked together before. Um, They both had a similar work ethic. They both had a similar uh, fastidiousness when it came to attention to detail. So it was um, a bit of a natural... Uh, think that when he uh, when he decided to have a triad in a Formula One car, he, he, again it would be with McLaren because yeah. he, he, he got offers on the table um, for Williams. Um, Brabham wanted him back as well, of course. Um, he came very close to signing for Williams, apparently. But 
but uh, and that, he, he would say that was probably the one regret he had as a driver was that he never drove for Williams because yeah. he, he liked their, their sort of racer attitude and philosophy. Um, but he was also very taken with the the technicality of um, the carbon fiber MP4 McLaren. Uh, he was also very taken with the, the fact that Obviously, John Watson had a huge shunt in one at, uh, at Monza in 1981 where the car basically broke in half and um, back up and got up in flames and what he just got out and walked away from it. That, that obviously uh, resonated with Nicky after his previous experience. Yeah. Um, and even at that early stage, uh, the, the, the mood music was that they were going to have a, um, a turbo engine that was going to take some development because what the more complicated the better as far as Lauda was concerned with cars he liked things that were really complex and difficult and needed a lot of sorting out and yeah. optimization that was absolutely right up his street so um, all of the challenges that were coming with McLaren were exactly what he wanted uh, and that's probably what finally inked it for him and I mean one of the great things about your book is uh, it was Watson who uh, who's written the foreword for you I mean how did that come about um I've discussed with um, with the publishers who would be the most appropriate person who we could approach for that. Because at this point, we'd, I'd already got um, what was originally going to be the forward written by Kurt Bergman, the, uh, the, the Kaiman boss, yeah. that we ultimately used as, the, as an after because of the way it was phrased and the way it resonated and it, it worked better in that environment. But um, given that um, John had been Nicky's teammate for a couple of years at Brabham, Sorry, for a year at Brabham and then uh, for a couple of years at McLaren, um, he's he seemed to me to be the best person we could ask to do the job if he if he was prepared to do it. Yeah. Um, and by coincidence, he had um, either been an advisor or had written uh, a contribution to another book that Ever had previously published and. Uh, my editor had his phone number, so we we approached him and asked him if he'd be prepared to do it, uh, and he said absolutely. Uh, so I interviewed him for a couple of hours. I think I probably only asked him two questions, and he just because he's a cracking raconteur, he can just you know he, he just makes it live. Yeah. So he just he just gave me a stream of consciousness really, and uh, which which is pretty much exactly what the for the for forward to the book is. Um, and there, there, there was also <laughs> it's a shame actually because there's an awful lot of stuff that he told me that he said oh but you can't write that <laughs> uh, but uh, they clearly got up to uh, they, they clearly had a good time together and um, they were clearly good friends you know and that uh, uh, friendship and affection lasted right till the end of Nicky's life yeah but uh, no I mean congratulations for writing the book it's it's one of those things until somebody tells you that it's been written it's not a book you would not be funny it's not a book you would think of but when you hear about it you think yeah these are the sort of books that make for interesting racing so I'll be perfectly honest the modern racing driver especially the modern Formula 1 driver does absolutely nothing for me they, 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 they're decidedly personality free most of whereas people like Louder were, were uh, well they're from the James Hunt era etc Graham Hill and everybody else. These guys were true personalities. Indeed, and they, they spoke as they found, didn't they? And, and they were sort of blissfully free of um, PR watchers and uh, political correctness as far as their teams were concerned. Yeah. So, you know, so they, they spoke as they found, which which makes it more interesting. I think as well, the, the main thing is that they, they, 
they had this ability to race in different machinery, you know, sometimes more than once on the same weekend. Not perhaps to the same extent as happened in the 60s, but certainly uh, in a way that is just not possible now because we're, we've got such rigid exclusivity in a Formula One contract that, you know, you can drive nothing else. Yeah. Um, and everything has to be said in the, uh, you know, in the voice of the sponsor and everybody's aware of the impact it has on other, other people. There, there, there was a lot more freedom there. And I think that that allows for some colour, as does the variety of the machinery and the variety of the places that they they drove in. You know, these days the circuits are very homogenous as well, aren't they? You know, you, it's sometimes difficult to see where you are. Um, well, I mean, by, spa, by, in many uh, respects, not an isolated mean, photo. In many respects, Spa's nothing like Spa used to be. Spa was dangerous, but I mean, technically, it was a little bit of the appeal of the sport. The other thing was. The cars all, a lot of the cars all look different to each other. Whereas now, you could paint every, you could paint one car in all the different sponsors' livery, and nobody would be any the wiser that they were all virtually the same car. Back then, they were all individuals, as were the drivers. Absolutely. I mean, some, somebody was talking about, um, uh, if you like a pub quiz game like that, if you painted all the current generation of cars white, how many of us would be able to tell which one was which? Yeah. Um, uh, and I know I'd struggle most definitely, was, you know, you do, you do that for me with a 1975 grid and absolutely no problem at all. I can tell you which one, you know, which which one every one of them is. Um, and that's, that, that adds to the appeal of it, I think, as well, doesn't it? But, you know, particularly when you look into the book that's quite photo-heavy. Yeah. You've got, you've got a variety of, um, uh, of attractive images in there and you can try and spread that around a little bit. But... Anyway, John, thank you so much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Uh, as you said, the book is by Evro Publishing. Can't I conclude, given our current climate, it's the perfect thing to enjoy your isolation with. And I conclude you can buy it online. You can indeed. Um, from the usual online sources and, of course, direct from the, uh, the publisher, which is nice and easy at evro, so evro.publishing.com. And, as I said, thank you very much for joining me on the show, John. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's a shame we can't chat a bit longer. It's one of these subjects we could probably have talked about. We could, I could probably have uh, included your interview of the next three shows, really. But um, we only, regrettably, we only met very briefly at Race Retro because I was in the middle of interviewing somebody else at the time. Absolutely, yeah. Well, always happy to, uh, to uh, repeat, the, uh, repeat the process if necessary, Mark. I can talk about this for hours. <laughs> After nine years of research, etc., I should imagine you will have a... I conclude your, the rest of your family are now delighted it's been published because we'll get to see you again. Yeah, although they've probably seen a, a little bit too much of me with, uh, with the current uh, lockdown. Aren't they? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> take up tractor driving. There is the answer. <laughs> John Saltinstall, thanks very much for joining me on Backseat Drive Radio Show. And as John's just said, the book... Nicky Lauder, his competition history is available from Evro Publishing, E-V-R-O Publishing. John, thanks very much indeed for joining me on the show. Thank you very much for talking to me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much.
Rarely beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tyres are the best in the business. And when it comes to tyre expertise and advice, to supplying the correct tyres for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tyres team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytyres.co.uk.